Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Samantha LaDuke, founder of LaDukeTrading.com and also CTO of LaDuke Capital LLC. I am joined by Craig Shapiro. He is hedge fund manager and also our resident macro advisor for our institutional edge and macro advisor bundle product for those who uh, want a macro edge to their uh, trading and investing as it relates to this market is all macro. We're all rates traders. I just want to let you know that we're coming together again, once again, to kind of do this webinar every other week because the market has been so eventful and I'm really glad to we can do it again. Craig, greetings. Good afternoon, Samantha. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm uh, you know, I like volatility, so it, it does me fine. But you made a comment today in regards to um, the Bitcoin volatility. Let's kind of start there because the market has already kind of been on wobbly legs um, post-Fed meeting last week and into and through um, non-farm payrolls and then midterm elections. And now we've got CPI tomorrow. But uh, you, we obviously have a, a big crypto cap crash going on around us and you made a comment about collateral damage. Let's kind of start there. Yeah, I mean, you know, crypto and, and Bitcoin, the asset class has grown so tremendously, you know, the last decade. Um, and it's obviously gone through, you know, various iterations and ups and downs. And, you know, it's been down a lot, right, this year. Um, and, and a tremendous amount of market cap has come out of, of the crypto universe. But it's still a reasonably you know, big asset class. I mean, you know, in upwards of almost a trillion dollars. So it's not, you know, it's not small. Um, and and I, I'll be the first to admit, you know, I've been a kind of Bitcoin bull um, for, for a very long time for a variety of different reasons about, you know, tick supply and, um, you know, an anecdote to paper money and Fed printing. But you know, it's obviously, you know, that the, the thesis on Bitcoin has changed its iteration several times over the last, you know, several years. We don't really need to get into it. But but as it pertains to right now, well, I mean, really what we're we're seeing is a is a massive liquidity squeeze and and some of the biggest players in the world, I mean, most specifically FTX, which is a, a you know, an enormous crypto player, exchange, investor. Um, you know, it seems like they're really going under uh, a lot of pressure. Um, and scramble to raise capital. They are clearly they're having their own margin call issues. Um, Binance said they would come in and try to uh, provide a lifeline, maybe. Um, but it sounds like that that deal is uh, is falling apart. Um, and so, because crypto is unregulated, and because these exchanges are unregulated and often overseas, there you know there's just such limited transparency and, and, and understanding of. Uh, how much leverage is in the system behind, uh, you know, these exchange, this exchange in particular, these these affiliated companies, um, and you know, there are a lot of major institutional players that are involved in this space, in this company, um, and and relevant companies. And so, you kind of start to unpeel the onion and think about the feedback loop of, you know, all the various investors that are in FTX that um you know maybe invested at a 30 plus billion dollar valuation less than a year ago and that that the the, the equity is worth zero so you know you start to kind of pile up big losses uh for maybe some hedge funds some venture capital firms some some other exchanges that are invested uh some private equity firms you also have very these various entities 
have uh, leverage against those investments. So there are banks who have lent money to these firms to make these kind of investments. And so there are there, there's bank exposure um, you know, here. There is what I think maybe might, what might be the most important part of this, which I'm still trying to kind of unwind and, and figure out is with respect to stable coins, um, because stable coins, you know, in order to keep their, their unit uh, value stable, they are invested in the safest securities in the world, most specifically U.S. Treasuries. Um, you know, at times, you know, they may be in, in short-term commercial paper, but it's really U.S. Treasuries that provide uh, the backing for these stable coins. And you know, not surprisingly, today we had a, a very significant bond auction, the ten-year options, the biggest, most liquid security in the world. It was probably the worst auction that we've seen in in several years. Very poor bid to cover. Three and a half basis point tail. Um, you know, obviously it's kind of sandwiched between yesterday's election, which we could talk about, and tomorrow's CPI, which we'll talk about. But it, it was an I think Peter Bookbar said it was an atrocious auction. So, you know, look, I mean, if you think about the Fed, you think about the Treasury, you know, they don't want to see disorderly U.S. Treasury markets. Um, you know, I don't think we're we're in a disorderly U.S. Treasury market yet, but we could get there very rapidly if if you know another buyer of U.S. Treasuries, meaning these stable coins, starts to go away. And so you think about Tether or you think about Circle or some of these other large ones, even FTX's own stable coin or Binance's stable coin, you know, there's a lot of pressure here. So um, yeah, it's not something that I, I thought was going to be uh, a catalyst per se, but if you were looking for uh, another reason why we may get system deleveraging over the course of the next few weeks, this would be a pretty good culprit. Um, and, and, and banks who are looking to kind of clean up their own balance sheets into year end um, are going to want to get this stuff off the books as rapidly as possible. I mean, the last thing someone like Jamie Dimon wants to hear about or see on his balance sheet is anything related to crypto into year end as he's trying to get back into you know, his capital charge lower so he could buy back stock next year. And that's for most of the U.S. banks. So um, we may be in a situation where we get a rapid deleveraging event kind of around these, you know, affiliated crypto investments um, that could, you know, lead to other types of deleveraging, you know, around the system that may ultimately filter into the treasury market. So, you know, I, that's what I'm trying to sniff out here. Okay, so I had just shared a screen while we were talking about the Treasury auction, which coincided, coincidentally enough, with um, a Nick Tamaros uh, Wall Street Journal tweet regarding uh, some analysts betting on a 6% Fed funds rate because uh, they think inflation control will require the Fed to keep surprising investors by tightening more than markets anticipate. So the new 5% has, you know, 5% has become the new 4%, and now that means that 6% will become the new 5%. But we had talked about this, obviously, two weeks ago, pre-Fed, no pivot, no pivot. So now that's um, kind of assumed, right? But they keep kind of boiling the frog slowly in water. Um, it just keeps pulling this hole, as you had put it, um, the further away, which causes risk, ask, risk assets, obviously, to continue to fall, maybe gently and then all at once or just very slow slog um, all on, on the way down. So anything changed since then, since our last kind of talk on no Fed pivot? <laughs> yeah, yeah, not, not, I would say not specifically, really, you know, the framework that 
I think I relayed last time, or I know we we talked about in, in the room, has been this idea that the the R star for the U.S. economy, the, the level of interest rate that we kind of allow, you know, slows growth enough to bring inflation down that still allows for uh, full employment is materially higher than than where we are right now. I mean, we have global, you know, excess savings. We have a, a generation of homeowners that. Um, have three percent mortgages that are really not impacted by these moving rates um, higher. So you know spending has held in okay. GDP in the second half of the year has held in remarkably well. I mean the Atlanta Fed estimate for four Q GDP is now up to four percent, um, which is a nine month high. So you know the U.S. economy can handle a much higher rate regime, and the labor market remains incredibly tight. Uh, wages are still growing, you know, five, six, seven percent. So it's going to take uh, a lot higher of a terminal rate in order to slow down growth, in order to slow down inflation enough to get back to the Fed's mandate. However, there there is another R star. There's actually, in my view, there's two other R stars. There, there's an R star for the U.S. financial system, the U.S. financial stability, and there's a, there's an e, which is lower, right? The, the U.S. financial system will will struggle mightily in a, in a 7% uh, interest rate world, terminal rate world, in a 6% world, and it's already starting to struggle in this kind of four and a half to five. Um, the overseas financial stability market will, will get hurt even quicker than that. And so the question is, at what point do rates rise enough to start to kind of lead to financial stability concerns? So far, the Fed has really said, there, there's we're, we're not there yet. Um, these markets are operating, uh, are, are well functioning. Financial stress is re remains at the lows, according to the St. Louis Fed Financial Stress Index, which various members have continued to, to talk about. So, so, but if, if we get a backup in, in yields and we, you know, tomorrow and, and the more contagion that comes from crypto and, and we start to get to a more disorderly U.S. Treasury market, um, you know, that could be something that causes the Fed to think about pivoting. And we're, we're losing buyers for U.S. Treasuries, right? Overseas buyers are not interested. The Fed is not there. Maybe we're losing stablecoin buyers. Um, and the Treasury is issuing an enormous amount of debt um, and has rapidly increased its expectation for the budget deficit for the next six months. That came out last week. Um, it's just been a massive pickup in, in Treasury issuance that's coming uh, over the next six months. So who is going to buy all this paper? Uh, is a great is a great question. So if that's some if, if yields start to become disorderly, we may start to see the Fed kind of needing to step back in sooner. We're just not we're not there yet. But the more the more risk off we get, the the quicker we get to that point. So this is just our U.S. debt to the ten year on a monthly. Just to kind of show you, this has been a dramatic fall from grace, obviously. But yeah, I still don't see any Fed pivot in um, in this breakage of 40-year channel. This is a ratio chart, but still kind of showing when do we get that effect, like you were just talking about, where the terminal rate starts to really hurt um, the economy. We, we're kind of slowly um, getting there, frog, water, boil. 
Um, Fed pivot, still don't see it until I get this little level uh, tagged. I showed this a month ago and it really just hasn't moved. But I think some of the more interesting ones are how SPY, we're all rates traders. So this kind of SPY TNX or Apple TNX and uh, Tesla TNX have been beautiful continuation shorts if, for nothing else than because they are really indicating, that's the wrong one, hold on, to see behind the camera. Uh, that's NASDAQ to SPX. So we still have, I contend, uh, lots of area on the downside for um, rates higher and markets lower. I know you're talking about you know, the, the kind of economic backdrop being a little bit more Goldilocks still um, because un unemployment is so low and so far um, consumers have absorbed the price increases by companies. But there's nothing bullish in this set of charts that I'm showing that still you know, indicates weakness across and also stronger dollar, but I'm looking for that one. Here it is. That's dollar. Hold on. <laughs> Give me a second. There it is. Apple to the 10 year. I mean, this is just a solid, solid rollover as rates move higher. So we're already kind of getting that um, indication in markets. I don't see where it, I, I like these charts because it kind of gives me a, a little bit of a move of where to cover, uh, for example, a Tesla short. And it's not done, right? So this 10-year, for example, um, on a monthly and a weekly time frame, you can kind of see that it's doing its damage. Rates are moving very firmly, um, or to say staying very firm, too higher. My rate of change indicator still says it's it's still got room to go. And the, uh, the charts themselves kind of prove that uh, the market, obviously, is not the economy, but they continue to come, on, come under pressure. Right. So I, I don't I personally have you know beliefs about when the market will stop um, and it's nowhere near. <laughs> so um, you had mentioned the let me just get this closed this um, as an economic kind of backdrop for we're still not there for Fed pivot or pause or even step down. But um, do you have a particular read for tomorrow's CPI, since there is obviously a lot of inflation baked into uh, that report and its market reaction? Yeah, I think the setup for uh, this inflation print is different than the one uh, that we saw uh, last time in the middle of October, where markets had been under tremendous pressure kind of leading into that event. Um, and so the there was a lot of hedging, there was a lot of puts, there was a lot of downside that had been bought for that event, such that when we got the hotter than expected print, um, we had the instantaneous fall and then you know a put monetization rally that was un, unlike one we've we've seen in quite some time. Only we saw a several hundred handle uh SP rally over the course of the you know the day and the following week and two weeks, you know exacerbated by the BOJ moves and the McTimoros article and, you know, the lead up into the Fed. And so we, we don't really have, you know, today, notwithstanding, the, the setup for tomorrow is not as negative. Um, and, and I saw there a, a street survey was going around 52% of people expect a dovish uh, print tomorrow uh, and a dovish expectation. I'm just looking at my, uh, and a risk on flavor. Uh, 30% risk off and 20%, um, you know, kind of negligible, not not too big of a reaction. That is apparently the first CPA survey since June where investors are optimistic. So 
the, the you know we we do have a situation where people are optimistic about a weaker than expected print tomorrow such that you know they had been buying upside calls uh for the event or certainly they've been not buying downside protection um you know for you know for tomorrow um there was another there's a one of these economic uh web scraping services called price stats which does a a a a survey of, of prices and apparently they had looking, you know, they're looking for a hotter than expected reading 0.8 on headline um, versus 0.6 expected and 0.5 core Cleveland Fed is in, you know, 0.75 headline and 0.5, you know, 0.55 core. I mean, look, I think my bias is we're going to get another sticky, uh, strong inflation print that, I, you know, it doesn't have to be. And, and in this case, it doesn't have to be a gangbuster print given the setup to lead to a risk-off flavor. Um, you know, the market has priced, has taken out a lot of 75 basis point hike for uh, for December. And so if we got uh, another very aggressive print and crude has remained higher, and then we have Friday, we have the U Michigan, you know, University of Michigan's inflation surveys, which are typically pretty strongly correlated to the price of crude, which is up month over month. So that could come in higher than expected. I think if that happens, you'll get more pricing into the front end again of higher rate hikes. And, you know, it will help take the terminal rate back up again. And the terminal rate kind of ended today, you know, at the 505 level for both uh, for May and for June, down off the highs a little bit. But I think, you know, another hot inflation print could take us back up towards uh, or take us towards five and a quarter or higher. And Any I think comment? That- Go ahead. Sorry. No, I, was, I think that's the setup for, you know, for for risk, you know, for risk reduction and for risk off, you know, forgetting about all the other stuff we mentioned earlier regarding deleveraging and, and crypto and other, other stuff. Yeah. Um, any any comments on the uh, ISM prices paid that came out? Yeah, look, I think that it's a good chart you have there. I mean, the issue for for markets is the green line. The 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 green line is kind of your core services inflation, um, which is something that Powell specifically has said he's watching for to see a rollover because core services inflation is much more uh, directly driven by wages um, and wages are much stickier um, than goods prices, which are more uh, impacted by the inventory cycle and some of the shortages we saw last year, which are being alleviated now used cars and supply chain has eased up. So goods inflation has um, rolled over, mm-hmm. but services inflation is, you know, is, is really not. And actually uh, with some metrics is re-accelerating uh, kind of in line with these wage hike, um, with these with this wage growth. So I think as long as is core services inflation remains robust, um, it, it remain, it, it's going to be very hard for the Fed to climb down its tightening it's tightening path. The labor market is very, very strong still. Yes, we've seen layoffs. Most of those layoffs are high paying Silicon Valley or maybe financial firm jobs. Mm-hmm. Those are important jobs, but there is still, you know, major demand across wide swaths yes. of the geography of, of America looking for labor in the, you know, $25 to $50 an hour our range, the 50,000 to, you know, 30,000 to $80,000 a year jobs. 
And that's where the shortages are. And until we, you know, until people from Silicon Valley decide to pick up a hammer and start uh, doing construction in, in Southwest Florida, we're going to continue to have the, this bifurcated labor market. And there's, there's enough um, Fed, you know, Fed presidents who are still kind of hearing this from constituents that the labor market is incredibly tight. And, and one other point I'd make, I don't think we talked about this last time, is just this idea about long COVID and COVID itself, which has removed an enormous amount of, of labor from the market. Um, and you, you think about more, more disability, uh, more people on disability for longer, you know, is a labor supply issue. And so the New York Fed did a study about this a few weeks ago and it's showing, you know, an upwards of 5 million people could be, could, may have been displaced from the labor market um, due to COVID. So, or long COVID. So this is another factor that is keeping uh, wages robust, which which keeps the odds of a wage price spiral in in front of the Fed's face, which makes yep. it harder for them to to pause or pivot. And so, you know, we keep pushing out the timeline for a liquidity add back back into markets, which is what I think is needed to firmly get us back to you know more of a, a bull market construction. So I have um, up a chart, obviously, of claims on unemployment, and it's just saying that, right? So, and that's been my baseline, as you know, since October 2021, and that, you know, the deflation of wages ended with COVID. So until um, this kind of uh, burst, which is a momentum burst that lags and then picks up speed, <laughs> and it's obviously got a look of bottoming, but it certainly hasn't picked up enough to help um, the Fed make its case. But I also like this chart of houses, new houses for sale by stage of construction, and it's an unemployment kind of graph that looks really, really um, choppy. But the point is that until this blue line comes back you know, and through the mean, the zero basically line, um, houses right now, the backlogs that uh, construction has, they're still playing catch up. So once they do, then there will be some very large construction related layoffs like happened in Idaho uh, this past week. The largest home builder um, laid off half of its staff, but that's not the national average right now. So right now it's still coming in, you know, the backlog, if you will, and playing catch up um, and lots of need and higher wages um, are still the enemy of bonds, basically, mm -hmm. um, and Fed. But I think that this will be kind of a little bit more of a, of a timing when this rolls over. We'll start to see a lot more unemployment, um, not just in that sector, but it's also big. It has 15 percent impact on the GDP. So just kind of showing those two charts that, yes, I agree with you. That's that's one of my kind of five areas that I'm looking at. Inflation expectations, which, yes, can roll over, but we can also have, you know, waves of peaks, of inflation peaks, um, just very much like the 70s. We really won't, won't know, but that's kind of been my baseline bet. Um, and so right now, the expectation that we peak and come down, it's wouldn't not a surprise, but then uh, we still have to, you know, go get through the winter and very much oil and gas is a, is a weather related bet. Houses under construction, like I mentioned, I think that's definitely um, once we see the job layoffs in that particular regard, but unemployment on Friday was, you know, a very robust 260,000, especially in, in leisure, um, hospitality. Um, so yeah, ISM services, definitely a, a strong component of um, the, uh, the the no pivot 
zone. But now talk a little bit about, you know, Namara and the Fed terminal rate. And now, you know, Nick from Wall Street Journal tweeting, uh, we definitely, in my opinion, don't have a market that smells um, a pivot coming and re China reopening is definitely not my baseline bet. What's your uh, timing for a potential pivot? When would it trigger for you? Yeah, I, I still, I think that ultimately the Fed will be forced to pivot for financial stability risks before it is forced to pivot because of its impact on the real economy. And so what we're trying to figure out is where are the, where are the, the fringe points or the fault lines of, of around the world that will break, that will ultimately lead to this spiral of uh, dollar, se dollar selling. So dollar rallies because overseas companies or overseas banks or overseas countries need to, to act, get access to dollars. So they're selling assets to raise dollars, dollar rallies, Yields move higher because they're selling treasuries, and that doom loop, you know, creates a, a break somewhere—a failed treasury auction, you know, something in Japan, something in the UK, somewhere, some, you know, in Switzerland. We talked about a bunch of these areas: the Hong Kong dollar breaks, something like that, that ultimately will lead to a massive deleveraging event that then takes down inflation expectations. Because ultimately, what happens in these deleveraging events is that inflation expectations typically plummet. Um, because people are afraid that assets are going to go to zero. And so it'll be that active inflation expectations falling because crude gets hit or across the board assets get hit. That'll allow the Fed the space to, to climb down its tightening agenda. It'll ultimately wind up doing it before it solved inflation. But with the S&P at 3,000 or 2,800 or 2,500, at some point, we're going to take down the wealth effect enough to, to break the heat on inflation expectations that will allow the Fed the room to pivot. So that's where I think, I think that's where we're going to, you know, so I, I don't, I think this discussion of where the ultimate terminal rate is an interesting um, analytical exercise, but I don't think we're going to ultimately just kind of keep stepping up 25 basis points every, every month until we, we get to some, you know, some point, something will break first. And that's, you know, that's how that's how accidents happen. That's how the Fed ultimately um, acts is that they they tighten to break something and then they come and clean up the mess. But Powell said very clearly also, we're not worried about over tightening. We have tools to fix it if we do. So that's a confidence uh, game. Yeah, look, I, and, and I think he still is in the camp of we've heard this from him and or from others that have said he does not want to be remembered as Arthur Burns 2.0. No one will remember him for causing a recession you know, over the course of the next three to 12 months, that ultimately allows the U.S. to right-size its economy after COVID and, and kind of, you know, re-emerge. Everyone will remember him if he doesn't solve this inflation issue. Even other members of the Fed who are becoming more dovish, whether it's Brainerd or Evans or Collins or this, this, this contingent that's concerned about the labor market or eventual recession, no one's going to remember them either. No one knows who Arthur Burns' vice chairman was. But everybody knows who Arthur Burns was, and everyone will know that Powell was unsuccessful. Um, so he, his ego, I think, will force him to continue to push this um, until something breaks. So th this was a, a chart going around Twitter, and I had written that I said I think the market will continue to decline 
until there is clear signs that the economy is weakening, right? So we kind of, we sell on the rumor um, of the, the, the weak economy, and then we buy on the news once we have a consensus, right, that it is in fact a weak economy. And then the Fed comes out and pivots. And traditionally, it's been a really, really bad time to buy risk assets. <laughs> it's, yeah. been, it's been the reshort, um, you know. Yeah, you typically don't want to buy the first rate cut. You want to buy the last rate cut. Yeah. You, you don't, you know, so the market now is, you know, is looking for that pivot it, it will, or that pause and then pivot. It will buy into it. Then it'll be disappointed. That rates are still too high and the economy is still too weak. And then the Fed will have to cut again, and then it'll get excited about that from a lower level. And then the Fed will have to cut again, and it'll have to cut again and again and again until it gets down to some level. Maybe is that zero again? I don't know. I don't think it's. I don't think we're going to go back to zero. We may, um, but we get to some level that kind of stabilizes the economy, uh, normalizes inflation, and then you know investors then can start to feel. Uh, more sanguine about adding risk, but I, we are so far we're away so far from that, <laughs> in time that I just I don't I don't see you know I'm gonna say you know hopefully that hopefully we're still doing these macro to micro sessions when we have, to have that conversation. <laughs> that I think now. it's gonna be I think it's gonna be <laughs> but yeah. I also kind of I, I still think the Fed is trapped, so I think it's just going to be um, kind of a zigzag. You know, even if we get to a point where they try to pivot. And risk assets go up for a very, very short period of time. I think it's going to still be a short, the ripped type of situation because of what you just kind of laid out. It's it's going to be um, long, lower for longer. And that yeah. also goes with tech. I mean, I, I did a big uh, piece this weekend in um, my intermarket channel where, you know, tech worries me. And I, I have said this before uh, back in December of 2021 and right on down the line, and then where most people are kind of expecting, finally, a capitulatory low, even with this Bitcoin sell-off, they're very excited about buying Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and, and such. Um, I go to, go to my kind of, you know, secret sauce inner market stuff, and I put together, I'm really worried about tech. And that was before the Bitcoin fall. Um, the collateral damage, obviously, is to sentiment, also in NASDAQ, because NASDAQ and... and, and um, you know, crypto is is extremely tightly, or Bitcoin is very tightly correlated. But even before that, there's collateral that needs to be sold, <laughs> right, for the for the liquid stuff to uh, to cover the margin calls on the illiquid stuff. Yeah. So I still see danger even before today, right? I wrote about this last week. Um, I'm really worried about tech. So I don't think this. We've had one wave. I call it one wave of flat, which was that 2021. Um, 2022 was the second wave down, and I see a third wave. So I definitely don't think safe is the the word I would use just because it's cheap. Uh, the interest that I have is how it's going to correlate with the sentiment of risk taking. And I think it's going to be a while before people can really come in here and say, oh, that's that's a bottom. You know, we've, we've really, really been through the worst yeah. of it. Um, I don't I don't think we're there yet. Yeah. Well, I think I mean, the crypto stuff. It, it does, it touches, you know, a lot more of traditional finance than people realize, you know, and it's not to say that all these people or, or players are going to go out of business because they, they touch crypto, but it does affect the way that businesses are run, right? Fidelity itself has a massive crypto arm, right? They have the digital trading, they have digital AUM, they have all, you know, 
is that going to affect how Fidelity thinks about investing or growth or, you know, in its investment committee meetings, right? State Street is an enormous global custodian for assets. It has a huge Bitcoin custodian business. What happens to that business, right? You know, let alone these various banks like Silvergate or New Bank is a huge Brazilian bank that Buffett owns a lot of. It's a digital bank. So, you know, I mean, there's a lot, you know, the look at the investor list of a lot of these companies. It's it, There's a lot of traditional hedge funds and mutual funds that, that own this stuff. Um, and when assets are getting marked down to zero and there's leverage against them, it forces them to do things in the other parts of their business. So, you know, you lose, you know, if you have a private investment in FTX, that was $100 million, that's now zero. That may affect your ability to go and trade you know, in a different market. So I think that's where, yeah. um, you know, we, we could be headed with, with with this kind of crypto crypto contagion. And I have not updated. This is obviously I grabbed um, from Twitter as well, and it's a few days old. But uh, the, the point of the matter is I still see lower 2018 minimum highs. And I've we're still we're still in a down market. So a lot of folks have become day traders intraday or, you know, barely overnight or for a week. But we're talking much more the macro backdrop of the current you want to swim with because it's a lot easier yeah. than swimming against. And it's very clear that the sentiment does match the charts ratio and otherwise. Um, let's talk a, bit, a, a little bit about the market and uh, the fact that we just finished um, kind of a, a undecided day as it relates to midterm elections. Um, what does that hold in store for us moving forward, especially end of the year? I know a lot of folks are still positioned to move above, you know, 3,900, 3,950 and spy so we can have a Santa rally. Because um, that's yeah. seasonally strong, and 18 midterms have passed uh, where we have had that seasonality bent. I'm on the other side of that fence, right? So I am, you know, I'm, I don't, I don't think we're going to. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, look, I, I mean, what do you I, see? I, I think you know, midterm we, political. Yeah, you need to balance the the seasonality of the midterm effect with what else is going on in in the world, but most specifically, what's going on with liquidity. And so there just hasn't been, I, I don't think, a, a midterm cycle that has uh, run commensurate with massive Fed liquidity contraction. And so I think the contraction liquidity will trump any seasonal you know, effect from midterms. I think there was an expectation, uh, given the polling, that we would have a red wave um, that had been uh, definitely something that had, had started to creep into the market with the idea that um, a red wave would be a uh, kind of permanent gridlock, um, probably an end to, you know, more fiscal spending anytime soon, which, even though, you know, we've basically been like that anyway for six months, but because uh, of Manchin, um, but, you know, some hope that Republicans controlling things would maybe keep inflation down and divided government is good for for stocks because nothing is done in DC. So buy risk and buy, you know, that I think that was part of what we also were seeing in the energy space, where we had a lot of upside calls and, and activity being bought in energy stocks on this idea that Biden has been horrible for the, the energy sector. Um, and the Republicans in charge, they'll un, they'll unwind some of the bad policies that the Biden administration has had towards energy, which have been bad, um, not realizing that Biden being bad for en the energy sector 
has he's actually been terrific for energy stocks. Mm -hmm. so I think it's probably pretty sure the energy space has been the best performing space under the Biden administration uh, out of any space. Since like um, 2001. <laughs> so, you know, this idea, it's, it's a little bit more like. Better and that's not a political statement. That's right. just we've had a phenomenal run. Part, yeah, part of me thinks it's better to have traveled than to arrive, right? And so you get to a point where now we have maybe uh, more Republicans controlling things. They open up drilling. That's bad for the energy space. So whatever, we don't need to necessarily get there. But I think, you know, there's still some uncertainty on what's going to happen here in the U.S. I mean, it looks to me like the Democrats are going to, you know, they're going to hold the Senate um, with this runoff that's going to happen in Georgia next month, um, which will allow them to uh, you know, keep uh, keep the Senate, uh, but that does nothing. And then, with respect to the House, this idea that the um, Republicans were going to pick up 25, 30, 50 seats, whatever, some ridiculous number, and it was kind of a you know an anti-Biden uh, agenda that that just didn't happen. And so, and and there's still you know 15 to 20 percent chance, given all the races that are still open, that Democrats actually can hold the House, which is crazy, but. Regardless, McCarthy will, as a speaker, would have a much less, uh, you know, has much less control over the agenda when he's only, you know, up by three, five, six, seven seats. And so all the committees will be much tighter. So, look, I think I think the election and politics haven't and government specifically hasn't really been doing anything for the market in the last few months. And I don't expect it to really be much of a driver either way in the next few months. The only thing that we kind of need to think about um, is the debt ceiling, which. Is is an object for the for you know the end of the first quarter in 2023. So we got, we got some time to to think about that. But but yeah, this idea that um, politics will trump net liquidity. I think you put that chart up before. Mm -hmm. there, there's a significant amount of liquidity that will be contracting from the system between now and the end of the year. Uh, the Treasury general account is the biggest driver of that. It seems like like Treasury has drawn down the Treasury general account which puts money into the markets and into banks. They did that kind of for the last six weeks running into the election. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it was reasonable timing um, there. Talking about this? No, the, yeah, so yeah. that's the, it's kind of hard to see it, but if you look this at like- Treasury general account. Right, you, see the little, you see the little bump up right before it, go, it no, right before it goes to shade. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So that that it's small on the chart, but that was one hundred and fifty billion dollars, one hundred and seventy-five billion dollars in the last six weeks that was injected into the market. Ah, uh, yeah. Based on what Treasury has said, they want the year-end cash position to be that one hundred and seventy-five billion is going to come right back out. So that's twenty billion a week between now and the end of the year that will be extracted from the market, and then you have quantitative tightening, which is another kind of 90 billion or so this month and next month. So, you know, it's 180 there and 175 from treasury is 355 billion of liquidity contraction. That could be offset by the reverse repo facility being drawn down, but in a risk-off setting and into year end, typically banks will want to just keep that money at the Fed overnight. So, we could just see a significant, further significant reduction in, in reserves across the board and the Fed's balance sheet reducing its size, which based on these, these charts of, of correlation, you know, could intonate an S&P down kind of in the, you know, 32, 3300, you know, zone by, you know, the end of the year or certainly early in the first quarter.
And that chart that I had just shown that uh, you also sent was this support, obviously, for the energy rotation, but all things value, right? So this is definitely the growth to value or momentum to anti-momentum or otherwise the high beta, high IV rotation to the low beta, low IV yeah. plays that have just been gorgeous for us for like literally two years, but especially the last year, right? Yeah. So um, November, 2020, I showed that chart, obviously of energy outperforming, um, you know, since in, in the last two years, but it's really taken off since November of 2021. Anyway, so this has been a stellar um, reason to avoid growth plays. Yeah or tech plays lots and lots and lots and lots of alpha to be made in low beta. (laughs) But it was interesting to me that there are a lot of tech folks that really don't want to deal with oil and gas or cyclical plays. They're boring Um, and no question, but they're also strength begets strength. So it has been an absolute outperformance for us when it comes to spine, this rotation and this macro backdrop. into higher levels. Having said that, I think they're right now, as I mentioned a few days ago, I think we're going to have some uh, volatility because um, only so far can this, you know, rotation move before the diamonds, which are, you know, heavily weighted with value uh, plays and such um, start to succumb to some pullback, right? They've been leading. So, and in lieu of sector rotation, in other words, if they're not going to growth plays tech, and energy's tired, <laughs> and uh, you know the the defense um, it doesn't mean they're they're done going up, but there's definitely I think uh, reason for some po- from yeah. some volatility to kick in. Yeah, I think this. I mean that chart which would say this is not typically a great time to initiate positions that are long value short growth. Yes, we, we've come very far in that trade. We're above three standard deviations, but more likely. Question. The more likely thing that will happen is we will get a little bit of an unwind of this trade. It, mm-hmm. We did get that today, right? NASDAQ yeah. was down 2.3% and XOP was down 6.5%, right? So, you know, I, but the question then becomes, you know, do you actually want to own growth or do you want to just kind of sell value? And what I, my, another phrase I like to use is alpha unwind begets beta face plant. And so, as we as we unwind this growth versus value trade, you know, short term here, maybe for a couple of days or weeks to kind of reset it. Um, that's typically going to be a pain trade. It's likely going to be more of a risk off type of, of trade, which is to your point, which is kind of if you're not getting the growth of value location, you're going to get volatility, mm-hmm. which in volatility going up will take us, you know, kind of down in a more correlated a car, a beta face plant, basically, in a, in a highly correlated way. So um, I think if this move, ex, you know, continues tomorrow and into the end of the week with energy falling, that's that's pain for that's pain for folks. And this is very much um, in the oil and gas play. So I'll just kind of bring these over as well. Hopefully, we can see. All right. So in in. The oil patch, right? This uh, I'm using crude. We came down to that 75, 76. Uh, actually, 75, 77 area was my short price target. It hit 76, 25, and then bounced up strongly. And it does have a look of trying to move. This was um, a few days ago, but the point is, uh, it's still, you know, trying to get over resistance of this kind of 93 and a half area. So we do still have um, potential for higher oil. 
but not right now. This is a perfect setup where, you know, there were so many calls bought into this midterm election, um, expecting a GOP sweep that it made perfect sense for market makers yeah. to, you know, take these uh, out of their hands. But also just the, for, the fact that we are not, um, we haven't discussed SPR, but the, the, the drama in that particular space is very much, I know folks who are very focused on uh, lack of demand, also lack of supply, um, what to do about oil. But for me, it's a rates trade. Everything's a rates trade for me. As long as yields are moving higher, this will stay under control. It also has the hand, the invisible hand of government intervention, not so invisible anymore with the SPR releases. Um, but once that it kind of exhausts itself, um, should yields actually do uh, come back down, whether it's a deflation risk or what have you, I actually see the dollar and oil as a release valve higher. So I watch them very, very closely with the dollar yen. And for right now, we're kind of having this sideways um, digestion period for oil, but it doesn't mean we're out of the out of the woods. We still have a risk of much higher oil uh, into the new year. But for right now, it's seemingly, seemingly uh, suppressed with um, SPR and other, you know, uh, um, intervention moves. Any comments on that? I think that SPR has been kind of, uh, you know, highly political in, in, in a way, but it's also been kind of in our strategic interest because keeping oil uh, down has had the dual benefit of keeping inflation in America down, but it has also helped our allies in the, U in the UK, in Europe, and in Japan uh, keeping their inflation down, which has prevented or, or helped prevent them from selling US treasuries in order to raise dollars to buy more expensive oil. So we, we've kind of used the SPR as a release valve to keep oil down, but also to keep yields lower than they otherwise would have been. So there is a concern that I have that at the end of the SPR selling, which I mean, you could argue it's now, right? Like, what is the impetus now? The election is over. The, the you know the the government's not going to um, continue this plan for for very much longer. Um, if that starts to happen, oil start, starts to rally again. We could be in a situation where oil rises with yields going up. Yeah. Um, as it becomes more expensive for overseas buyers again, and they need to sell treasuries to raise dollars to buy oil. So um, it'll be interesting, you know, to 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 see. My sense is the oil, the SPR releases are going to slow down materially, uh, you know, here. And if Republicans are in control, um, you know, certainly I think there there will be more of an impetus for for that to stop too. What about gold? That's a question I'm seeing in chat. So we need to kind of also kind of address some of those questions yeah. um, before we get too far off, but I, I, away from our time frame, I should say. I don't want to do more than a power hour. Um, time for, for gold, silver mining. What's your view? Yeah, I've, I've been, uh, you know, last couple calls here, I've been trying to, I own gold calls because um, I think ultimately, at some point, uh, the Fed will need to bring back and add liquidity to the system, and gold will anticipate that eventual liquidity release. Gold also has the, the ancillary benefit of being a neutral reserve asset, which in a world that we have now where, where 
enemies like Russia and China and maybe even some other our allies who are moving towards the East uh, want, don't want to own dollars anymore, don't want to own U.S. treasuries, but want a neutral reserve asset and gold becoming uh, a bigger part of that. Um, again, Russia wants to transact in gold. Um, emerging market central banks have been buying more gold and holding less treasuries. Um, the confiscation of Russia reserves probably accelerated that. So I think gold has a lot. And then today or the last couple of days with the crypto unwind, you know, people who had been thinking about Bitcoin as a store of value for fixed supply in a world of fiat printing may just say, you know what, it's too complicated, but I still like that thesis. I want to own gold. So gold has a lot going for it. Um, gold, I think, is held in reasonably well, despite a very strong move higher in real rates over the course of the last you know, 12 to 18 months. So you could argue if and when real rates actually started to come down again, uh, that's when gold would start to really shine. Gold in you know, non-dollar currencies, right? Gold in euros, gold in yen is done much better because the dollar has been so much stronger. So gold's kind of doing what it's supposed to do. Um, and and I and I still own it. I still I think I think gold makes a lot of sense. I think gold calls make a lot of sense. The timing remains tough, but because uh, you just never really you know you never really know how far the Fed is going to take this or not. But I think you do want to own that as part of a as part of a portfolio, particularly as a portfolio like mine, which is more uh, weighted towards being long dollar. Gold provides you know a, a nice hedge against that exposure. And uh, Rithika just said gold, not yet. <laughs> But um, yeah, I, I still have, uh, you know, the correlation where um, gold is traveling lower with yen and bonds um, and the dollar yen is still flirting with higher, even though it came, you know, drastically down from that 152 area down to 145, all contrived, right, Bank of Japan uh, intervention on October 21st. Um, and that helped, you know, yen pop. Uh, bonds stop falling and also for gold to catch a bid, but I'm not con convinced that that's done. So for me, it's very much um, an intermarket play where it says we have time to base. And then when the dollar yen is done going up for real, in other words, maybe we have a parabolic spike higher to that 165, but when it actually does roll over for good, then I think gold is going to take off like a rocket. And I mm -hmm. don't think right now the dollar yen at 145 is done going up. So it's very hard for me to get excited about gold. I know the real rates, you know, correlation. Um, Rithika saying, just said gold bulls, not yet. When everything goes to 100% correlation, so will gold initially. So for me, I, I still have my tells, right? So there's trading on a chase, swing, and trend timeframe. And I still don't see a trend reversal for gold. No. Um, but we, like you said, getting getting calls even back in March. I mean, not back, in the past few weeks, getting calls further out in time um, has still paid pretty well just for this yeah. initial pop the past few weeks. So holding those make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Um, another question, which was, what about Russia, uh, Ukraine? What if there is a ceasefire? What are the odds? Uh, we kind of got through midterms, so to speak, um, as far as that politicizing of oil and SPR release. What about the uh, uh, pulling troops out of Ukraine? There's a lot of rumor, but there's also you know, some tactical moves I'm not following closely enough. But uh, how does that impact 
uh, actual positioning for the market versus just the, the speculative FOMO hope yeah. that China will reopen or that Russia will step down. Yeah, it seems like the market has become kind of numb to the Russia-Ukraine situation in a lot of ways. Like we don't even really, we don't really talk about it much when there's these rumors that Russia's pulling out or Putin's getting peaceful. We have short rallies, but they don't really, they don't typically, you know, kind of go anywhere. I suspect, you know, if and when that announcement is is finally made, you know, we'll uh, we'll have a relief rally on that for for risk, and I suspect oil would fall, and 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 we'd have a shift of value to growth on on that kind of the almost like the opposite of what we got in maybe the Pfizer vaccine news, right, which was a shift from growth to value. I think the end of the war would be a shift from value to growth because you know, inflation would be thought to come down. There'd be this idea that the, the energy would flow more rationally. There, there is no deglobalized world. Um, and oil so, will drop like a rock to 65. Right. So, but playing for that is very, is very difficult. You know, Putin's not going to the G20 uh, next week. I don't get the sense that he's moving um, out of Ukraine anytime soon. And I don't get the sense that He's looking to sell his energy in U.S. dollars anytime soon. So seems like we're at a little bit of a, a, a stalemate there. Um, December fifth, I think, is when all the allies are going to stop or are going to try to do this price cap. I don't think it's going to work, but I suspect the day that that goes into play, Putin's going to make an announcement or he's going to bomb something or do something that jacks the oil price up. So we may want to look at that day uh, in around that date for oil upside, uh, possibly just to kind of be there. Uh, in case something, you know. Yeah, Bob has a similar view, right? Our, our oil trader who just does oil um, says it's always good to have a lot of long. But the the call mania that was going on, the, the chart that I showed into the midterm elections, obviously, is a little bit, um, I think this is, space it out next year. But in any case, uh, speaking of um, oil-related, uh, solar, getting a question. Uh, any views on uh, the solar sector? I don't really have big big views there. Clearly, there was uh, they were up today. I think on uh, relief from the sector that there was no red wave, um, and so if there's no red wave, that means that there's you know uh, renewable fuels are still core strategy for the administration, and so there was some relief there. The stocks have been they've been incredible. Um, I don't really have you know I don't really have much to say. I'm not really sure. And housing. Um, this obviously, I talk about this and write about this on occasion as well. But uh, um, what's what's your view of rising rates and the impact in housing? Yeah, I think housing is going to continue to to grind to a very sizable halt in activity um, as we try to find a price level that supply and demand start to meet. I mean, the national housing price indexes are all materially higher than we were pre-COVID. I mean, many asset classes now are falling below pre-COVID levels. I mean, you know, and we've had various growth stocks and various other emerging markets that are, you know, below where they were in February of 2020. Housing is materially above that. And it's not really clear that it needs to be um, in a world of 7% mortgages. Um, it's just not you know, that the unaffordability issue is there. So I think we're going to go and grind to a, 
a halt basically on activity. And over the next few months, we'll start to see how distressed home builders become, how quickly they want to move their inventory. Do, do people need to start selling their homes because they can't afford to live in them? And that will start, you know, do millennials start to buy homes with cash because they've been waiting for years for good prices. Um, so housing to me doesn't seem like, or housing doesn't seem like a great sector to be in. I think, it, you know, home remodeling, maybe that does a little bit better as people are saying, you know what, I have a 3% mortgage. I can't leave. I'm not, I'm not moving anywhere, but I like my home. I, I could do some re, I could do some work in it and, you know, you know, spend some money kind of fixing things up. Continuation of the COVID stay at home. Um, housing definitely matters. We lost already collectively 1.3 trillion or 7.6% um, of their equity during three, third quarter alone. But I have a, a little bit different, like you just mentioned, folks are staying put. Um, in other words, folks who can sell, don't, don't need to, um, don't want to. There's, you know, also less uh, work from office, but lots of hybrid going on. So they've got more flexibility in their uh, work-life balance. Um, but also the uh, the rate lock situation where it's not going lower. So those who are in the real estate business are investor, the, that are selling are the investors because <laughs> 25% of uh, single family homes is, is uh, estimated to be owned by um, publicly trading traded companies. So those are the ones that, that they can discount prices, but still that cost of materials and labor is all inflationary, which is keeping the housing market relatively still supported. Yeah. So that's um, another reason why I follow a great uh, housing analyst, Logan Mats, uh, Mota Shami, who basically in June said the housing recession is upon us. You know, we got lower, we got sales are down, production down, jobs are lost, incomes are lost. Um, it's not the same for the economy, but it's not all lost um, because we still have low inventory um, and strong inflation uh, and basically still, uh, for the most part, balance sheets that uh, are, are, are still doing pretty well. So definitely a must follow if you're into um, the housing market, depending on your time frame, obviously. Um, and then just speaking of time frame, we just hit one o'clock. <laughs> so I want to uh, thank you all for coming one o'clock, one hour. I want to thank you so much for um, coming to this macro to micro power hour. I have one question that was asked in a chat. Do you think we've had the lows for the S&P this year or not? Place your bets. What I'll say is I think there is heightened risk that we take out the I think there's a heightened risk that we take out the lows, but it needs to happen imminently. Um, and I think we are setting up the possibility that we could have that kind of uh, event situation with, you know, with, with, with what's going on right now in crypto, with the CPI print tomorrow, and with this zero data expiry, um, you know, kind of obsession. Um, the market right now is not properly hedged for significant downside you know anymore right we don't have those deep out of the money puts call skew is is out of whack i mean so you know deep out of the money puts are actually cheap um versus where they maybe they were four and eight and 12 weeks ago so if we get a situation where we have some contagion continuing to brew tomorrow friday into the weekend um commensurate with a hot cpi print without a lot of hedging we could get 
a massive amount of just, you know, put buying all day tomorrow, all day Friday, and just dealers have to dynamically hedge. And that creates this, you know, kind of self-fulfilling uh, prophecy. Um, if we don't get that, then, you know, if, you know, next few days or so, what, what I think probably will happen is vol will just kind of get compressed. This crypto stuff will go away. There'll be some hope, you know, the, the Santa rally will, will, you know, start up again and, you know, maybe just kind of grind higher or this, this, this range fast without very many catalysts left for the rest of the year. Um, buybacks will be in place, offsetting some of the liquidity suite, uh, uh, liquidity contraction. But I think we walk into, uh, you know, 2023 with, you know, a, a lot of a lot of trouble. Well, I honestly have been surprised that first and foremost, when I made the call at the beginning of the year that there would be NASDAQ underperformance and this value rotation would continue. I had a 3,800 for SPX and we hit it and then we bounced and then we went through it. <laughs> so, you know, early at the beginning of the year, I really thought 3,800 was a reasonable level. Um, and then I had to readjust. Okay, now 3,400 um, or, you know, 3,333 was basically the, the, the line where I was looking at for next year. And we've already come really darn close. So the fact that the, the, the crypto implosion and, um, you know, th this continued FX volatility and treasury volatility, I still see bonds as a short, um, you know, to 85, which I've talked about for, Z uh, for um, the TLT, ZB still looks a mess. I still see everything as a rates trade, right, from oil um, to the dollar to tech to value. I just I, I see everything in the, in the in the light of a rates trade. So as long as yields stay stay sticky to higher, I absolutely believe the market will continue to roll over and head lower. Um, so I don't have a particular price point anymore. I, I've been asked that because I, you know, got that at the beginning of the year and we already hit it. <laughs> you know, so I, I honestly, I, you couldn't pay me to pick an absolute price target for year end. Um, but yeah, I think that the market is finally after this very strong advance in the diamonds. Um, now I think in lieu of in lieu of rotation, there will be volatility. This is a perfect time to start having some volatility, um, whether it's CPI, you know, related or not. Um, I just think that the market structure and the volume, the, the cumulative volume and the, the breadth, everything to me says still NASDAQ is in a massive bear, um, in a bear market, not rally. And any rally is to be sold. And until my intermarket shows otherwise, and unfortunately, I think it's going to be another year or two before we're done going down in tech. So I don't think anything else is really going to um, be a, a solid uh, bet in tech uh, until then. So I'm definitely bearish. Um, all right. Uh, again, thank you everyone for coming. And if you are interested in finding out more, you've got um, Fishing Club is my service. We also have Macro Advisor Bundle where you get Craig if you want more concierge service, uh, which is really customized presence from Craig uh, for any size investor. But definitely this is intense you know, a customized macro analysis as well as bespoke um, research as well as trade support. Uh, definitely check us out. This is right underneath here on Macro Advisor and Macro Advisor Edge. So I want to thank everyone for joining. Have a great rest of the week. We'll see what happens tomorrow with um, CPI. We'll be uh, live in the trading room tomorrow from nine to one. And then we'll see you on Twitter. You can find both of us on um, Twitter. 
And uh, you got a funky little uh, Twitter handle. Can you share that? Mine's really simple, yeah. at Samantha LaDuke. Mine is CES921, which is my initials and my birthday. So. <laughs> oh, awesome. All yeah. right. So greetings. every. Uh, good luck, everyone, for the rest of the week. And we'll, we'll catch you in a few weeks. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay.